I just want to continue on from Steph's conversation last week. She looked at the Philippian church and she looked at Paul's writing, that all too real debate of life and death and how Paul isn't just philosophically speaking about life or death, but it's actually an all too real experience for him. He could die and be killed at any moment. And he says to live is gain. To die is Christ, but to live is gain. Because he's concerned about the church and actually progressing other uh, churches and in different areas as well as the areas that he's already in contact with. But I love that lens that he was looking through and what Steph drew attention to last week. Whenever you're faced with death, whenever you know death is coming, that life seems so much more vibrant and exciting. And it really highlights what's important in life. Two weeks ago, Ryan introduced us to Philippians and Ross did a great job at reading the entirety of the book. And I think there was something really special about that because that's the way Paul originally intended Philippians to be read. New stops, new breaks. And as a result of uh, translators coming in and working with the, the Greek text, they broke it up into different sections. So your Bible might say in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, the wee title above it, it might say is Christ's example of humility. At least mine does anyway. And, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the example of humility and humility as a concept as well. But it's something which... I really struggle with humility, okay? I'm not just saying that, okay? I'm not trying to be a false, be false hum- or be, uh, have false humility there. But there was one guy who I really kind of resonated in the Bible with whenever I was growing up. And his name was Moses. You know the guy who was given uh, the Ten Commandments, God t- or spoke to him through the burning bush. And you can see those traits in me if you want. That's fine. You know, there's leadership. That's all great. No problem. But the trait that I probably resonated the most with was growing up, I really struggled with my speech. I really struggled speaking. And that was a trait that he had. So I kind of took to him and, and loved everything about him and how he overcame that. And it gave me hope as well. But the bit that I want to draw attention to was Moses was a humble guy. The bit that I could never really reconcile is if Moses is accredited for writing the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Numbers 12, verses 3, it says that Moses was a humble guy. He was the most humble person in all the earth. Now, if you've written that book, does that mean that you're really humble or that you have pride, okay? But I'll give a credit where credit's due. There's brackets around that one sentence. So I'm going to say if Moses wrote those five books, somebody else came in afterwards and stuck that in because Moses wouldn't write that about himself. But I love that concept of humility where I've used the phrase before, I'm as humble as Moses if he wrote the book of Numbers, okay? And the, the whole concept of humility is something which I probably find a bit warped. We're very good in Northern Ireland to put ourselves down. We're very good at slagging each other off. But it doesn't really stick with who we are in Christ. Before I came to Redeemer about six months ago, there was a guy called Jason Adam Miller, one of Dave's friends from America that came over, and he talked about the image, the mantra, which is we're all icons made in the image and likeness of God. So humility doesn't really work when we're putting down what God has made and we're putting down 
our image and likeness of God. Whenever we slag each other off, when we put ourselves down, when we have false humility, what we're really doing is pushing down the values and characteristics of God. So for me, humility doesn't really work in that concept. The concept of humility is something which probably is a wee bit closer to C.S. Lewis, and I think the quote's going to be on screen as well, where humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not about putting yourself down. It's not about putting other people down, but it's about bringing other people up because they are valued. We, you are valued because you're made in the image and likeness of God. You are an icon of the king. It's about putting other people first, and that's a harder concept to grasp, I think. And we'll look at that as it unfolds in verses 1 to 11 of Philippians chapter 2. So let's read that, just one to four, first of all. Therefore, if there you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each to the interest of others. So the first point that I'm going to be making today is united in humility. Paul's looking to the Philippian church to be united in humility. And he goes about it in these four verses in two ways. He tells them why, which we'll be looking at shortly, and then how. The Philippian colony was a colony, a Roman colony. And so it was made up of a lot of Roman elite. It could have been retired Roman soldiers. It had the original populace that before the Romans made it a colony. It also then was made up of handheld there? Is that better, maybe? Is that okay? So it was made up of slaves as well, and you can see that there was a great mix in the general culture of the Church of Philippi, the great diversity. So you can see who Paul is writing to. He's writing this letter in jail, and they've sent, uh, the Philippian church have sent Aphroditus to help him with a financial gift. The thing is, it's not like McGabry where I live, and yes, I've heard a lot of jokes about prison vans, don't worry, we're good with that, okay? But in, in McGabry, there's, there's taxpayers like ourselves who will help finance the, rest, or the restoration and the, uh, the actual uh, recovery process of those criminals. The words that me there, but you know what I'm talking about. So we pay in order to help their rehabilitation. Got it. But in Philippi, that wasn't the case. If you were in jail, you would rot there unless somebody came and fed you, like friends and family, or if you would go naked unless they clothed you as well. Your actual whole dependence was on someone who loved you and cared enough to make a financial sacrifice for you. And Paul is writing this book of uh, Philippians on papyrus, which is really expensive first and foremost, okay? And he's not flush with cash, so what he does in this, these first four verses is he crams as much as he can into one big long sentence. 
Originally, this is like 82 words long, no punctuation, no nothing, no spaces, no commas. It's just one massive long line of text. Kind of my style of writing, okay? But right bang in the middle, what he does is he puts this phrase, the only one verb that's in the whole 82 words, make my joy complete. That's it. It seems strange that that is his command, make my joy complete. And in verse one, we see why we should make and why the Philippian church should make his joy complete. Paul says, something kind of carries on from Steph's talk last week. She talked about hope being a certainty, which was amazing to hear, that hope will happen at some point. And when you read hope, it will come into place. And he continues that theme of certainty with a rhetorical use of the word if. So here you can see in, in the text, if you put that back up on screen, that therefore, if there is any if there is any joy or encouragement from being united with Christ. Replace all those ifs with because. Because there is encouragement from being united with Christ. Because there is comfort in love. Because there is common sharing of the spirit. Because there is tenderness and compassion. They make my joy complete. Might be strange uh, question of why, why did he say that like that? What, what real difference does that mean and make? But the therefore in this verse one actually points back to chapter one, verses 27 to 30. And where Paul is talking and challenging them to be a colony that isn't actually finding their citizenship in Rome, but in heaven itself. They're a colony of the king. And actually the love of the father through Jesus' death on the cross, that's where they find their joy. The fact that the Holy Spirit has come in in order to help them enable their life, they've entered into a partnership with the spirit Paul talks about. You're no longer Roman citizens, but citizens of heaven who just so happen to live in a Roman colony. So Paul encourages the church of Philippi. Paul writes to them and tells them how much joy he has from them. It's an undercurrent in the book, of Philippians, and 16 times he writes, I take joy, I am encouraged by you being here and, and seeing what you're doing in, in Philippi. And he loves them with this deep, passionate love because they're like his baby, really. He loves seeing them do well, and at the minute they're facing suffering. Verses, chapter one, if you've got your Bible open, chapter one, verses 27 to 30, it says that they're suffering and I see you suffering in the same way that I was suffering for the sake of Christ. There is nothing that unites people than a tragedy. More than a tragedy, more than suffering. In Dungannon, there was a teenager who died suddenly. And there was hundreds of teenagers who were Shaken, shaken to their core. And I like Paul can speak into this because I've seen it. I've seen the fact that whenever people are coming united around grief, questioning, pain, and it is tough, but they were together. They loved each other well. They encouraged each other. They were united beyond that I'd ever seen. And even in the dire circumstances that that was, it was a joy to say that I was there with them, that I loved them, and I had the privilege of pastoring them in that moment. 
So Paul here is not saying, I don't understand what you're going through. Paul is saying, we're united together in this. We're a band of brothers here. I know what you're going through. I have faced it myself. We share in the spirit. We share in the same love of the Father. We share in the Father's connection right here. We're united in this. I know your pain. And what I love Paul does, he's way beyond his time when it comes to insight. You'd nearly think he got help from, the father, like from God himself writing this book or something. You know, something happens in there. But whenever he starts to unfold themes here that no one else is speaking about, you can see here the his we have in this text. If there's any comfort in his love, okay? The Greek doesn't have the word his. It's actually throwing back to the Father's love. That's what the writer is talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about. But you see the lovely Trinitarian structure that he brings here? That's what Gordon Fee says. I just stole that from Gordon, okay? It's great. But lovely Trinitarian structure where there's Christ, there's the Father, there's the Holy Spirit. No one else is talking about the Trinity. It doesn't, it's not even a word that people are speaking about. It's unknown. But Paul draws out the greatest example of unity in the Trinity. And he sets it up as, look at these guys. They're there. They're encouragement from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we don't have time to get into that this morning, so we're just going to kind of go over into the next part of the how to be united in humility. Paul lays out examples for us to be united in humility. Verse 2, it says, by being like-minded. How do we do that? By having the same love, being one in spirit, and one of mind. And we'll come back to that wee chunk there, but do not do nothing out of selfish ambition. Have you ever used someone to get ahead? Have you ever went into your job and stolen an idea because you thought that was a good one? If I present that in my meeting, then you know what? I'll be actually a wee bit higher than everybody else and my boss will see me as the one who has all the ideas, has it all together, and I'll get the promotion next week. Have you ever done that? Hopefully not. You guys are all great. But we'd never do that in Redeemer at all, okay? But then you have vain conceit. Always trying to give the more important view of yourself. And like, if you're thinking, I don't do this, do you have Instagram? Because the chances are you do. The best life, I hate that hashtag, living my best life. Because that means then that all the rest of your life sucks. Doesn't it? But living your best life, the way we part forward a front that we are more important, that we are more significant than what we truly are, a vain conceit. Rather in humility, value yourselves above, rather in humility, value others above yourself. The vain conceit, if I just jump back to that, when was the chance, when was the last time you were real with somebody? When was the last time that you told someone how your life actually was sucking at the moment? When did you let someone in on the ground zero of your life and help you journey through that? Because that's a joy and a privilege for other people to be a part of and to help you in your pain. And we'll come back to that at the very end. So just hold that in your hand. If you're hurting, let someone in. Be real with somebody this morning for the first time, maybe in quite some time. But rather in humility, value others above yourself. Steph mentioned last week that the colony of Philippi operated in an honor-shame society. She did a really good job on that, so I'm not going to mention too much about it. But the goal was to climb up the social standing in life. 
And the more you went up close to the top, the more respected and loved you were in the community and the bigger deal that you were. And it goes against the norm. What Paul is saying actually goes against the normal society. It's culturally distant in this, in this area of Philippi to become like slaves. Paul introduces his book with a timely expression that we maybe have glossed over because we, we know Paul's writing. It's, it's just common knowledge to us. The fact that he greets them, dear brothers and sisters, greetings from you, from Timothy and myself, slaves for the gospel of Christ. He sets himself up as nothing. I was down at a Rubicon yesterday and Scott McKnight was talking about this. I'm like, yes, Scott, talk more about Paul. I can bring this to the guys in Redeemer tomorrow. And he was talking about how the, the fact was that what they did was that orators would go around and would talk about and actually get paid to speak, get paid to actually uh, talk in the cities. And therefore, as a result, that's how they made their money. And one in particular, what, did anybody know what Paul actually did for his job to make money? Somebody? Tent maker, yeah, linen maker. And one of the, this is from Scott McKnight, I'm quoting directly here, okay? So if anything does not check out, it's his fault. But what happened was one order came round to the Tarsus where Paul lived and slagged off tent makers, linen makers. And what Paul turns around and says, I am a manual laborer, I am a slave. He doesn't care that your value was placed up in what you spoke or what you did. Paul came in at the ground zero. I'm a slave for the gospel of Christ. I am humble. That's what he was looking at. He made everyone else more important than himself. I'm not going to get into the false humility brag there. It's not that what he's doing here, okay? He's not being another Moses if Moses wrote the book of Numbers. He's being truly humble, lifting others higher than himself. So, in humility, we, Redeemer, are called to put our spouses ahead of ourselves, to put parents' needs ahead of your own, to put your friends' needs ahead of your own, to put your city's needs ahead of your own. In humility, look out for the interests of others, Paul says. And I can only talk about myself, but if I caught this, then what difference would that make in my home? How would, I, how would that treating others better than myself change how I spoke to my children, spoke to my wife, Cheryl? How would that alter in my everyday ordinary? How would that change my interactions in work? My journey to and from it? My conversation with my father and my mom? Who, let's be honest, can grind the gears in your life at times in love. But how would that change my attitude? It really boils down to humility and unity, what Paul is saying. Really united, one-minded, having the same love, being in the same spirit, and of one mind, unity. Living as citizens of the gospel of the king. But dare I say it, unity is not the aim that Paul is speaking about here. Unity is the goal, but is not the means. Terrorists have unity. Terrorists come together and are united about a faction and a call. So what sets us apart? 
One writer states that when the church comes together on preferences, it will fall apart. If the church comes together around personality, a leader, a venue, a demographic, if that is the glue that holds the church together, then at some point, that church will fall to pieces. But what happens when the personality moves on? What happens whenever the venue changes? We will still be here next week, okay? Do not worry about that. But what happens whenever the glue that holds the church together dissolves? What happens when a church's fix is on the preferences, which are all good things, but instead of the gospel of Christ? You see, when we make the main thing the gospel, we're walking in the way of Jesus. Our focus is together united. Our preferences don't matter because the love of Christ allows this table for us to unite around, to come together with differences and realize that it's okay to hold this intention. It's okay to love each other. It's about seeing every other person here made in the image and likeness of God, an icon of Christ. And when we get that, there's space at the table. We're called to walk in the way of Jesus. And if we do that, as a colony of Belfast, I encourage you to do that because that would look so different and fresh in this place. How radically different would this idea and concept be if we did this right? And we will stay united as a church because your preferences will turn from what you want, okay, as good as they are, and you'll be thinking, how does this affect my brother and sister? How do I love them well? How do I be of one spirit and one mind? Doesn't matter that you'll have all this. That doesn't mean that you'll have all the same opinions. But you'll see the main thing is the main thing, the gospel of Jesus. And what that and how that works out in life. So here we had the how and the why. And now we're moving on to the greatest example of humility in verses 5 to 11. So these, got, these seven verses are probably the most talked about verses on all the Bible. So I'm going to kind of work down through them and just pull out one point. You'll be glad to hear. Just one point right bang in the middle. And it says, Jesus, who very nature God, your version may say in the form of God. And that word for form is morphe. Morphe theum in the form of God. Okay. An accurate representation of the true being. That's what Morphe means. Jesus is, he was, he existed as God before he came born as a Mary. You can see it in the, in the lineage there, in the chronological order. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And here you see the love and nature of Jesus. You see the fact that Jesus didn't see his position as something to be kept to himself. He saw our brokenness. He saw our depravity. He saw the world and the state that the world was in, and he loved it and wanted to help. So there was no expectation in him. He was a king. He was with God in heaven. He didn't have to do anything, but he chose to come, poured himself out, taking the very nature of a servant. He made himself nothing. Very nature of a servant. You can see where Paul gets that language from. He humbled himself taking on human likeness, becoming incarnate, which means flesh and blood. This is where our, my limited knowledge, I'm going to put it on me, okay? My limited knowledge sometimes really fails to grasp this. 
He didn't come as human with a touch of God or he didn't come as God dressed in human clothes. But he was both. Okay, fully God, fully morphe theu, morphe dulu. Fully God, fully servant made in human likeness. He even looked like a man in verse 8, it says. Okay, he was a man, basically is what he's trying to get across. But I remember my view of God growing up. I remember the, the concept of my Jesus that I had read through the Gospels. I remember this boy who'd, have you ever heard Talladega Nights, the movie? Okay. Baby Jesus. Okay. And the gold fleece. I'll leave it at that. Okay. And this concept of this perfect baby God who came, lived a great life, never cried, never made a noise. Okay. In the manger, no crying he makes. Okay. Crazy concept of God, of Jesus coming. This perfect baby, babies cry. Let me know, I know that all too well. They keep you up at night. He was fully God, fully human. But anyway, getting back, he taught the Pharisees. My idea is that he was sitting and had multiple scribes and Pharisees around him. He taught them all the intricate details of God. And that did happen later on in life. But I was thinking he was doing it from like two, three years old. As soon as he could speak, there's this wealth of information came from him that he had a mind-reading ability. He was superhuman. But if we look at actually what the Bible says, it talks about the God that came, who was baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit falls on God, on Jesus, sorry, and falls on Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that enabled him to do his ministry. It's the Holy Spirit that enabled him to speak. It says about the Jesus that I know, he was thirsty, he was hungry, he was tired, he had human attributes and characteristics because he was human. He learnt, he grew in teaching and in stature, it says in the gospel. He didn't come knowing it all. He learnt on the job. But why did Jesus choose to empty himself out? He chose to come Jesus of Nazareth, losing, not losing his God status, but taking on flesh. God incarnate, baptized by John the Baptist, Holy Spirit descended, And yet what happened was he washed his disciples' feet. He was a servant. The worst job in the world, washing disciples' feet. He became obedient. And this is the point which Paul is fully on, laying at home thick and fast, even death on a cross. For us, we gloss over that. We've actually turned it into something nice, polished, jeweled at times and we wear it around our necks. This perfect, nice representation of the cross. See, Jesus wasn't forced to play into this plan. He willingly came and died on that cross. And Paul uses this same tactic that he used in verses one to four where he put make my joy complete, bang in the middle, so that they wouldn't miss out on this point that he's making here. This poem, this messianic poem as it's talked about, is something that existed before Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Something that uh, some writers would, would say that he took it and he made his point in it by, if you put up the, the actual one, the first couple, you can see there that there's, in these verses, there's three lines. And then when it comes to verse, or verse number eight, there's four lines. And he adds in this, even death on a cross. 
right bang in the middle of these six verses. Employing the same tactic from one to four, right bang in the middle, make my joy complete, even death on a cross. That's the point he's making here. And what does that mean? Here's the example of humility, even death on a cross. Epaphroditus would be reading this aloud, just the way Ross read it aloud, and they'd be going, working down through this poem, and they'd be like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, we've heard this before, and then when it comes to verse 8 in our Bibles, even death on a cross. Imagine their hair sticking up in the back of their necks. A silence in the room. Did, did he just say that? You see, in the honor, shame society, the cross was the most shameful thing that could ever happen. You weren't worried about death. You weren't worried about poverty, but you were worried about shame. And so the cross was basically the only thing that was reserved for criminals, murderers, and the scum of the earth. The only way that a Roman citizen could be crucified was that if he committed treason against Caesar. The Jews themselves despised the cross. The Jews said that cursed is anyone who hangs in a tree in Deuteronomy. That's what it speaks about. That's why Jewish uh, guys still struggle with the fact that Jesus, their Messiah, could never be cursed from God. He could never hang in a tree, so that couldn't be right. But put yourself in the shoes of the Philippians as, as Ephroditus was reading this. What Jesus is doing here is he's redefining honor. What Paul is saying is, if you want to live like Christ, then chapter 1 to 9, you share in my suffering. You share and you become like Christ and you suffer like him for his sake. What Paul is saying here is this colony of heaven. When you are united in Christ, it's not about climbing up the social ladder, but descending into shame, descending into dishonor. And one theologian states that God in and through Jesus, redefines honor. In verse 9, it says, Therefore, because of all of this, because of the cross, in light of the cross, it says that Jesus gave him the name that is, our God gave Jesus the name that is above every other name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow every he- in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus redefines shame and turns it into honor. What honor looks like is a broken, bloody Jesus hanging on the cross. The most shameful act that could ever be done to a man, that's what honor looks like. That hits me right in the gut when we think about this. Because we have no idea the the worry that this puts in the Philippian church right now. Because they're told in verses 9 that he gave them the name that is above every other name. That name was Yahweh, the name that they would never speak of because that was reserved for the Messiah. They're saying that this was the Messiah. Proclaim Jesus as Lord. What was treason in the, church of, in, the, in the Roman colony? Proclaiming anybody but Caesar as Lord. What was the way that tre- people who committed treason would be punished? Death on a cross. So Paul here is saying, actually, if you, procle- you need to proclaim Jesus as Lord, but the thing is, you're going to be marked like Christ. You're going to be crucified like Christ was. And that would have sent chills 
And yet Jesus redefines the cross as honorable to be like him. God has no problem with honor as long as you redefine it around Jesus. But Redeemer, what does that look like for us as a colony of heaven in Belfast? What does it look like to be Christ in our community? What does it look like for us to descend into shame? What does it look like for us to sit with the shamed and despised? To stop and to care for long enough to get to know them, to hear their story, to listen, to act, to love and to do life with them. What does it look like? You've heard this story before of when we as a leadership were to a bar, but it still sits in my gut with something that completely ties me in knots. It was a prophecy over Redeemer that on our doorstep there would be a prostitute crying, that we would be a safe place for the people who walk the streets at night. How does that sit with you? How does that make you feel? Because this whole concept of being a Christ-like community is not disconnected. Paul does not disconnect this from reality. It has to hit home to our lives. To me, that sounds like a blessing and an honor to be a part of that story. Of taking the shame and hopefully transforming it into honor. Of sitting and crying, drying up tears, hearing and listening to the voices, the stories, the horrible situations, and hopefully doing something about it. Changing the face of our community for the better because we are Christ-like followers in this place. See, if we catch that, then everything changes in this place. If we catch that, then Donegal Street changes for the better. Because we get to show the mercy and compassion of Christ wherever we go. But it's easy to say, and I'm going to bring this home to myself as well, and hopefully you get the aspect as well. I just realized I've left something over here. But it's easy for us to say, it's easy for us to make a token gesture And one of the things which I really like, and do not hear me wrong in this, I love this company in Belfast. It's OI. Where they will give away hats. If you buy a hat, they'll give away a hat to a homeless person. The concept that they're looking into is actually seeing homeless people come off the streets, giving them jobs in order to hopefully give them dignity, a paycheck, and a better outlook in life and a better hope but is that my token gesture is that me keeping it at arm's length because that's easy to do that's i want that hat it's easy to do something which we benefit from but our oi being more christ-like than i am our oi doing better good acts in this community than i am actually doing in my life Because I'll be honest, what does that, in light, what does the cross do in light of me walking to and from work every day, seeing the homeless sit on the street begging for money? That doesn't sit right with me. What am I going to do about that? Bringing it closer home, even still, 
table Sunday to our shame we went out because we had so much food big table Sunday we went out into the streets to bring people in great biblical model but the woman who was sitting with all of her bags all of her life wrapped up in bags in Boy Park where did she go? Where did she go? It's easy to do token gestures, Redeemer. But if this cross does not change our outlook, then we have missed the point. We can say we're Christ-like communities, but we've forgotten the cross and we've forgotten the Christ who was on the cross. Like Christ, we need to forget about the stigmas. We need to forget about the honor and the shame that goes with it. And we need to turn that shame into honor. When we live as a heavenly colony with everything changes in light of the cross. And as we come to the table this morning, we're going to close up really quickly. But I want you to make it even more personal because this was a message of joy. Because when you get it, everything changes. Everything alters in light of the cross. So I know I've been heavy there but let me bring it home where it brings you hope, freedom, and joy. Because I don't know what you're walking through right now. I don't know what you're journeying. But let us as a community walk through that with you. Maybe you feel as if you're inadequate. Maybe you feel that you're seeking to validate yourself by accomplishment, never feeling as if you've done enough to be good enough. And that shame sits heavy with you. Jesus, through the cross and resurrection, transforms your shame into honor. You become an honored guest around this table because of the cross. And if you've been abused and hurt by the past, in the past by someone who you trusted or loved, I encourage you to let us be there for you and walk through that because we want to see your shame be lifted off you and turned into joy. And we want to journey with that So please don't go from here today if that's your circumstance. We want to have the privilege and honor of sitting with you, loving you well, crying with you and walking with you in that journey. So whatever your story, Christ makes you an honored guest at this table. There's enough room because we hold our preferences and we say, we love you, Jesus. And because of Jesus, what you've done for us, there's space at the table for everyone. And when we get this, everything changes. But I feel in the room there's still something that we're holding on to in our own relationships. If we want to bring it out there, we must first do it in here. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24 just came as we were praying this morning. And it's about before you come to the table, if you have an issue with anyone, First of all, leave your sacrifice. Leave your sacrifice that was going to go on the altar and go and reconcile with one another. I feel that there's broken relationships in this room right now that you need to go and you need to say, humbly, I'm sorry. If I have hurt you, I want to make amends. And you know who you are. And what's going to happen is that we're going to be breaking bread with each other anyway. Don't feel as if there's all eyes on you. There's not going to be. There's going to be space to do that. But leave your gift. Bring communion with with you to that person.
reconcile that relationship. And when we do that, true joy comes because we are united in Christ, seeking the welfare of our church, our community, and our city. And joy breaks in through the restoration, through the cross. Joy breaks into that. Let's pray, Redeemer, and then let's come to the altar and break bread. Christ, in light of your cross, we thank you. Christ, because of what you did and the shame that you took for us, you redefine our shame. You create us, and you created for us a seat at your table. You created for us a place where we could call home. And in shame, Lord, you have honored us. So Lord, help us to catch that. Help us to grasp that. Help that to change every relationship, every conversation that we have from here on in. That we listen, that we care, that we bring Christ into those conversations. That in light of the cross that changes everything, we live out being a colony that's not worried about what other people think and the shame that situations might bring. But we look to dust people, lift people up. Think of others as more important as ourselves. And bring joy and hope back into people's lives where once there was despair and shame. 